Welcome to Canvas Church. You are listening to our weekly celebration service message. Thank you for tuning in. I'm really honored to be here and really excited also. Um, the, the verses that we're read in the video are actually the verses that I'm going to be speaking about. And <clears throat> I was talking to Pastor Katie this week and she was asking me if I was ready and how I was doing. And I was like, honestly, those verses are so good and so full of amazing information about Christ that I can read it and drop the mic and leave. But then I remember we don't have a mic, so I decided I better just say something about him. Um, so turn to your turn your Bibles to Colossians 1, 15 to 23. And um, like Pastor Ben said, Brandon did a phenomenal job a couple of weeks ago talking about the first 14 verses of Colossians. But I And he framed the entire book, but I wanted to frame it again for us, um, just as a reminder. So this book was written to the church in Colossae, and the church in Colossae was in the middle, in between um, the Euphrates and Ephesus. And um, the it being there, it was three cities that were in the middle, and it be, those cities being there made them trading cities. So there were people coming and going all the time, people moving back and forth from those cities. And Colossae was really a small city. It wasn't a big city. And um, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul had never been to Colossae. What happened is the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus, and while he was in Ephesus ministering and talking to people and talking about the gospel and what Christ had done in his life, some men from these three cities heard him, and God completely transformed. Their lives got completely changed, and they decided to go back home and share and start churches of their own. And may I just say something about that? These men weren't scholars. These men were incredible ministers. These men were three men that sat down and heard a man talk about Christ and said, more people need to know about this. More people need to know about this. And some of you here, you guys don't go to community groups or you guys don't want to do a, the school of ministry or you guys don't want to be involved in things because you think I don't know enough. May I just tell you, just share what you know. Christ in you is going to use you. Christ in you is going to share through you. These guys have started churches for crying out loud. We don't need to be scholars. We just need to know that he who is in us will speak through us. And that's what matters. That was just a parenthesis. Let's move on. So this was a trading route, right? So it was a trading route. They came back and forth. And because it was a trading route, it meant that a lot of philosophers and a lot of men and women uh, would drive by and stay some time. And then a lot of crazy ideas started seeping through. And um, it's, they started seeping in through the church as well. And the problem with that is that um, they were false ideas. They were bad doctrine. They were not truth. Um, so Epaphras, who is the man who started the church in Colossae, decided to go to Paul and say, and that's what you can do when you don't know what to say. You can say, I don't know. It's okay. Um, so Epaphras was like, I don't know what to do with this. So he went and talked to Paul and said, Paul, there are all these crazy ideas that are coming, and I don't know what to do. Um, the church in Colossae is believing them. I don't know what to do. And, and Paul said, I got you. I'm in jail. There's nothing much I can do. I'm going to write a letter. So... He said, I'm going to write a letter, and then you get, and he wrote a, a few more letters. He wrote Philemon, too, and he wrote, um, uh, they believed that he wrote a letter to Laodicea, which was another city right there, uh, and it got lost, and I kept wondering what it said. I wanted to look for it, but, um, but anyways, all these churches received letters, and, and Paul wanted one thing to be clear, and it's who Christ is. Because these men and women coming from the East, uh, mostly men and philosophers coming from the East, they kept saying that all matter was evil. 
all matter was evil. So Christ couldn't have been a man because if all matter was evil, his body would have been evil. So he really wasn't a man. He really wasn't God. They were sharing all these ideas that were not the reality of who Christ was. So Paul takes these, actually he takes the entire book to talk about Christ, but specifically these verses. And these verses that I'm going to read about are actually the most concentrated doctrine on Jesus Christ that you will find in the New Testament. They are the, the, the verses in the New Testament that have the most concentrated information on who Christ is. And I think that if the Colossians needed to know that back then, certainly with all the crazy things that we hear today, we need to know who Christ is today and have a complete understanding of who this man is, this man who died for us. So I'm going to not start in verses 15, uh, verse 15, where is where Pastor Ben told me to start, but I'm going to start in past. I'm going to go a little bit high and start in verse 13. Let me pray first. Lord God, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord God, for the word that you have put in me. Let it be communicated through your grace and not my own strength. Let every word that comes out of my mouth, Lord God, be a word that you want me to share. Allow for your glory to come. Allow for you to be magnified today and not me. I thank you, Lord God, for today, and I thank you for the word that I'm going to share in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let us start in verse 13. Are you there? Colossians 1:13. he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. <clears throat> I'm going to start there. I'm going to stop there, and I want to talk a little bit about what that says. For, for Paul to be able to explain who Christ is, he used four specific um, arguments. And the first argument in verses 13 and 14 is that Christ is the Savior. If we live today only understanding that Christ is the Savior, we got it. Christ is the Savior, and what that means is first he delivered us. He delivered us. What, what the word deliver us means is that he rescued us from danger. Pretty much we were living in a really bad neighborhood and he rescued us. He said, don't worry, I got it. But not only did he deliver us from danger, he then translated us. He transferred us, the word says. And when he talks about transferring us, he talks that not only did he come and deliver us from danger and say, I got you. He said, don't worry, not only do I got you today, I got you forever because I moved you. I moved you. So he moved us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And see, if we go still with the idea of we lived in a bad neighborhood and he moved us, even when we're in the midst of that neighborhood, we really are not there because he's with us. He's so good that he said, I'm not rescuing you today from danger. I'm rescuing you forever from danger. And he translated us. <laughs> the people in Colossae understood the translation because 200 Jews from Babylonia had been translated, it's the exact same word, had been transferred into Colossae. So that's what it meant. It means moving from one place to another. See, when you start living with Christ, you're no longer where you used to be. You might feel like you are. 
It might look like you are, but you're not. He delivered you from danger and then moved you and translated you. But that's good enough, isn't it? But he didn't stop there as our Savior. He didn't stop there. He also redeemed us. And what it means is that he met the holy demands of the law. He met the holy demands of the law. So um, I've never been to court for me. I've been to court for other, like, other stuff, but I've never been to court for me. But, and I've seen cases, and I, I really, really enjoy lawyer shows. Who likes lawyer shows? Thank you. Aren't they just the most fun? It makes me feel like I can take the world, and I'm a lawyer too, and I start talking that way. So my husband says something, I'm like, ah, no. And I have the perfect argument. And anyways, uh, what it means when, when it says, the word says he redeemed us, he met the holy demands of the law, is that when we went to court, the judge looks at us and he says, the bail has been paid and the jail time, somebody took it for you. All of us are guilty. Every single one of us is guilty. But because of Jesus, when we go to court and we look at the judge, God, he looks at us and says, everything is paid for. The jail time is over. You don't have to worry about it. But he takes it one more step because then the judge looks and he says, not only that, you've been forgiven. The record has been erased. The record is gone. That is exciting to me because I know there are things in my record that I'm glad are gone. I know there are things in my record that I'm glad are erased. And that's the kind of Savior that we have, the kind of Savior that says not only will I move you, not only will I take you out of danger, not only will I transfer you into another kingdom, but also I will pay the price for what you did back then, and I will pay the jail time too. And on top of that, I'll erase the record. He's gone. And that's Christ, the Savior. And then we go into verse 15, and Paul doesn't really stop with Christ the Savior. He says he's the creator. Christ is the creator. He existed before creation. It says in the Bible that he's the firstborn of creation. First, <coughs> excuse me, firstborns are a big deal in the Bible. Uh, the firstborn received a double portion, and the firstborn was the one that received a blessing from um, the father. But this firstborn doesn't really mean that he was the first to be born out of all creation. It means that he existed before creation. It means that before anything was, he was. It means that before anything existed, he existed. Before creation was, before anything that we see was, Jesus was standing with the Father. And why, why is it important for us to know that he was the firstborn of creation, that he existed before all, all of creation? Because he was there because he is the creator. He existed before creation and he had to be there before all of creation happened because indeed Christ is the creator. There, it's no, no wonder that when Jesus was walking on earth, the winds and the waves obeyed him because he created them. And everything that you create, you own. And the things that you own obey you. He not only created the whole universe and the winds and the waves, but he created each one of you. He created me. And that means that he owns me. That means that he owns you. And that has connotations as to who makes the decisions in your life, right? Who do you obey? Because whatever you own obeys you, and Christ owns you. So it's important for us to understand that he is the creator. He existed before all things. He, nothing has really purpose outside of him. Before I was a Christian, I 
I was a really good student, and I, um, <coughs> I did everything that anybody had to do. You know, I did really good in high school. I did really good in college, but I really never knew what I was supposed to do. <coughs> I really never knew what my purpose was. I really never knew. It wasn't until I met Christ, this man that saved me and redeemed me and translated me and forgave me, that my life made sense. Because it isn't until you meet the creator that you understand what you were created for. It isn't until you submit and surrender your life to that creator and you look at him and say, own me and do with me whatever you may, that your life starts to make sense. So all things exist for him, through him, in him, because nothing makes sense outside of him. Not only does nothing make make sense outside of him, in verse 17 it says that he holds all things together. And it's really funny because I feel like our life is a whole bunch of puzzle pieces. And we keep trying to cram puzzle pieces where they don't belong. So we walk, you know, with a puzzle piece on our side. And we're like, we're good. This looks good. It's great. And God is just looking at us being like, no, I know where that puzzle piece goes. It's not there. But we keep trying desperately to put all things together, to hold all things together, and it just doesn't work. Sorry, my throat is hurting, so I had to take a hold. He try, we keep trying to put all things together. But Christ is the glue to our life. Christ is the one who holds it all together. So we may try as hard as we want. And we may push those pieces. And we may cut them around and try to make them work. They won't look good. They won't look good at the end. It's so much easier if we let the creator, the puzzle maker... Put all the pieces in the place that they are supposed to be because he holds all things together. Only him holds all things together. And then Paul moves on. And it says Christ is the head of the church. He's the source, the origin, the ruler, the leader of the church. And last week, Pastor Ben um, had an amazing message. How many of you think pastors, our pastors are amazing pastors? They are amazing pastors. I really love them. And I figure that if I say that enough, he, if I mess up today, they'll forget it. So they are amazing pastors, you guys. So um, he's the head of the church. And Pastor Ben was talking about he is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And how he's not the head of this church. He's not the one that is leading this church. He's not the shepherd of this church. He's just the shepherd's dog. And it is important for us to know that because if Pastor Ben messes up, the church will move on. The church will remain because Christ is perfect, because he is the creator. So we don't have to worry. So we don't have to depend on man because he will disappoint us at one point or another. He will make mistakes, and that's okay because he's a human. And it's better because he's not the head. See, we don't understand the head. The the job of the head in a body is actually pretty important. (laughs) Without the head, we really don't have anything. When he talks about Christ being the head of the body, the head of the church, each one of us is the church. Christ is the head of you. Without Christ, we look like bodies walking aimlessly. And bodies that walk aimlessly, they get hurt. But beyond that, they hurt others quite a bit. It's important that we put Christ where he belongs. At the head. Christ is the head of this church. 
Christ is the head of the church at large. Christ is the head of your life. And if you allow for Christ to be the head, you really don't have to worry about decisions. You really don't have to worry about where to go because the body doesn't make those decisions. The body moves as the head leads. And if we let our Christ lead, we go where we're supposed to go. Otherwise, we are bodies. And it doesn't look good. We look pretty ridiculous, actually. We're bodies moving aimlessly. And then we move on to verse 19 and 20, and it says, Christ is the <coughs> fullness of God, the beloved of the Father. He says, in him the fullness of God dwells. In him the fullness of God dwells. What does that mean? Well, first, I skipped this. It says that he's the firstborn from the dead, right before in verse 18. It says that he's the firstborn of the dead. And I read that, and it was those epaphras moments. And I was like, what? What does that mean? And I had to research it and look. When it says he's, he was not the first man to ever be resurrected. We know that from the Bible, and we know that from history. Many men were resurrected before him. What it means when it says that he was the firstborn from the dead, that he was the first to defeat death. He was the first to defeat death. And that is exciting because when Christ came back from the dead, he never went back. He was done. He never went back. He's alive. He's alive today. He didn't die. And he's the only God that we hear of in history, and there have been plenty, that is not dead. He is alive. Our God is alive because he defeated death. And what it means for us is that he defeated death for us, and he's the firstborn. Therefore, we get to go after him, and we will too defeat death. And we are promised eternal life because he is the firstborn, because he defeated death at the cross. These men and women that were, um, men mostly again, that were philosophers that, that were speaking of Christ and really lying, they didn't deny Christ. They really just took his place and moved it. They, they, the enemy doesn't need to tell you that Christ doesn't exist. He doesn't need to convince you of that to win. He just needs to move Christ from the preeminent place, the most, the first place in your life, the top. And if he's able to move Christ from where he belongs, and if he's able to tell you he really is not God, he really is not the head, he's just a good man that loves you and just died for you so you'd be better, if he convinces you of that, he won. That's all he, he doesn't need to convince you he doesn't exist. He just needs to lie to you about who he is. And Christ is preeminent. That means that he's the first and the only. He is Christ in all. That means that he has the first and most important place in creation, and he should in our lives. But if the enemy gets to lie to us about who he is and that place that he holds, he's one. So he's the beloved of the Father, and the fullness of God dwells in him. When he talks about the fullness of God, it's talking about the sum of all the divine properties and attributes of God dwells in him. The sum of everything that God is dwells in him. And that word dwells doesn't really mean that it lives in him only. It means that it found a home in him. The sum of everything that God is, all the attributes, all the powers, all the amazing things that we probably will never understand until we go to heaven... The sum of everything that God, God is, found a home in Christ. And Christ gives us the Holy Spirit so that it dwells in us too. Do you understand this gift? 
this gift is the power and the attributes of God in us. This is no small gift. He, this is not just a man that died and was so nice to us. This is a man that gave it all and put it in us so that we may live according to what he has called us to live, so that we may come out of the mud and the things that we keep doing, so that we may live in the light where he supposed for us, where he created us to be. This is a big gift. This is a huge gift. And sometimes we live like it's no big deal. We live like this Christ. He, he was a good man. He was great. He was, he was nice. And may I say something? He wasn't nice, by the way. The guy was not nice. Hey, Jesus, can you heal my eyes? Yeah, let me spit. <laughs> That's not very nice. Hey, Jesus, how do we worship? Well, you had five husbands. What? That's not very nice, calling people out. He wasn't nice. He was God. He is God, and he is God in us. Because of him, we get to have God in us, and we get to share in, what, in who Christ is. And that's a big gift. So why is it important for us to know this? Why is it important for us to know all this doctrine and information about who Christ is? Because wrong doctrine always leads to wrong living. If we don't know who Christ is, we can't live according to what he created us to be. If we don't know what he created us to do, if we don't know who we are in him, then we can't really live according to who we are. That's all the enemy needs to do, to give us wrong doctrine. If he can feed us lies, and we live according to those lies, believing that they are truth, then he's got us. We live according to the wrong doctrine, and wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. So then we move on to verses 21 to 23, and these ones talk about us. Sometimes it's good that the Bible talks about us. Sometimes it's bad that the Bible talks about us. I think this time is good. So let us read verses 21 to 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The Bible says in verse 21 that we were estranged from God. We were separated from him. When um, Adam and Eve sinned, what they really did was declare war. What they really did was to stand in front of God and say, we no longer can have a relationship because God cannot be in the presence of sin, and they sinned. And they knew what they were doing. So they declared war. So we have been in war with Christ. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, For the mind that it set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I love the first three chapters of Genesis. They are my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And in chapter 3, when, may I say something about chapter 3, by the way? When God comes back, he doesn't curse the man and the woman. He curses the serpent and the ground. Even though we declared war on him, he says, I still won't curse you. 
there are consequences to your sin, but I love you so much, I still won't curse you. Not only will I not curse you, I will give you a way out, and I will send a man that is going to come out of woman that is going to crush the head of the, the, the devil. That's the kind of God that we serve. Immediately after we declare war on him, he says, I won't even curse you. Actually, I'll give you a way out. But when he's cursing the serpent, he says, um, Cursed will, y- will you be above all livestock, and on your belly you, sh- you shall go, and you shall eat dust of the earth. But if we read the chapters before, it says that man was made of dust. If we're feeding the flesh, the enemy has a legal right to devour us. If we're feeding the flesh, the enemy has a legal right to devour us. And he's been eating because he's a dragon in Revelations. He's been eating plenty. No longer is he a serpent, but he's now a dragon. Including me, and I believe some of you go through these too. We keep talking about how the enemy is attacking me. And the enemy is doing this. And the enemy is attacking me. And he's attacking my finances. And he's attacking my family. I don't doubt that he is. I believe that he is. But every time he attacks us, we feed him. Every time he attacks us, he, we go, oh, my finances are the worst. Oh, my husband, I can't believe him. Oh, my children are the worst. And we feed him with these thoughts. If we feed the spirit, we starve the enemy. And what starves dies. And if we starve the enemy, then we don't have to worry about fighting this thing. Because we're feeding the flesh. See, it's not your battle, it says in the Bible. It is God's. So start letting God fight that battle for you. You feed the spirit, which is what you've been called to do. See, and when the enemy starts attacking, you feed the spirit. Read your Bible. Feed the spirit. Start praying. Start worshiping. Start feeding the spirit and starve the enemy. Because as long as you keep feeding the flesh, you're going to keep feeding him. He's going to keep growing in your life. And honestly, we can't complain much longer. You can't complain about things that you allow. If we're feeding him and he's growing, we're allowing him. And people that complain about things that they allow, how do they sound? So we were estranged from God. We declared war on God. But then he says that we have present reconciliation. And Jesus came because there is nothing that we can do to fix that war. There is nothing that we can do to fix that relationship, our standing standing with God. So Jesus had to come. Jesus had to come. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, actually just the last verse, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He didn't come so that we may continue to be rebels. I think that sometimes we believe that forgiveness is an excuse to keep sinning because he forgave me. But forgiveness is not an excuse to keep sinning. It's encouragement to be obedient. Because he forgave me, I have to live a life to honor him. I have to live a life to be obedient on him. When we understand the price that he paid, when we understand the God that he is, when we understand what he did for us, we can't keep sinning. Because we understand that the price that he paid for us is high. He paid for us with his own blood. Romans 5, it talks about how we never die for anybody. We wouldn't die for a bad man. Maybe for a good man, maybe. None of us are good. 
And while we were still sinners, he died for us. While you were still in your mess, while he knew everything, he knew everything. And on that cross, knowing what I was going to do, knowing that I was going to deny him for years, he died for me. Not only did he die for me, it says that he calls me holy and blameless and above reproach. And that word holy is closely related to the word saint, which means set apart and devoted to Christ. This man, knowing me, knowing what I did, he died for me. And when he looks at me, he sees a saint. And when he looks at me, he sees me set apart and holy and a saint. Do you realize that when he looks at you, he calls you a saint? Do you realize that every morning when you wake up, he looks at you and he sees a saint? And he's proud of you? Because that's the God that we serve? Not only does he call us a saint, he says we're blameless, without blemish. It means innocent of any wrongdoing. We're certainly not. But when he looks at us, he says not only are you a saint, holy, set apart, but you're without blemish, you're perfect, you're innocent of any wrongdoing. I don't know what I would do without God. Because when he looks at me, he sees me pure and perfect. And I know. But he doesn't even stop there. He says, not only are you holy and a saint and blameless and without any wrongdoing and perfect, you're above reproach which means you are free of accusation. No charges can be brought up against you. So it doesn't matter that I know. Because when he looks at me, he says, I see nothing. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. When I look at you, Joe, when I look at you, Mel, when I look at you, Eli, when I look at you, Cody, I see you holy. I see you above reproach. I see you blameless. I see you without any wrongdoing. Nobody can bring any accusation against you. Nobody. Some of us live our lives bringing accusation upon ourselves. Some of us say, I know he died for me and he forgave me, but I can't forgive myself. Can I say something to you today that may not sound very nice? Every time you fail to see yourself through his eyes, you're denying the work of the cross. Every time you choose to see yourself through your eyes and not his own, you choose to deny what he did for you on that cross. You look at him and say, your blood is not enough. You look at this man who died for you. You look at this man who loves you deeply and did the only thing anybody could do to save you. And you say, I know that you say that I'm perfect, but look at that. Look at that. And he keeps telling you, I don't see anything. Stop denying the work of the cross in your life. It doesn't, it's not, it's not humility. It's pride. You're denying the work of the cross in your life when you choose not to view yourself through his eyes. Choose today to leave this place knowing how he views you. Choose today to leave this place knowing that you're holy and blameless and above reproach. 
And last but not least, it talks about the hope of the hope of the gospel and their future reconciliation. Uh, my husband was talking to someone a couple of nights ago, and he was talking about a depression that he went through. And he was saying, deep down, I knew that one day I was going to hit rock bottom, and it was going to be fine. Somehow, there was a small glimmer of hope. And kind of life is not easy. My life is pretty good. Uh, sometimes it's not easy. And I know that some people's lives are actually harder than mine a lot harder than mine. But the good thing about living with Christ is that it doesn't matter what we go through. It doesn't matter what's going on. That we know that he promised us a heaven. That he kn we know that he promised us this hope of the future. That we don't have to worry about what happens here today. Because there is a hope for this city. Revelation 21 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So I tell my husband all the time, it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. And if you ask me anything, I will probably answer it's not a big deal. It's pretty bad. But I believe that. And the reason I believe it's not a big deal is because I'm going to a place where there is no death and no pain and no tears. Because everything that I do here, I do here because I have this hope to see that place. And I don't know how you live your life, but if you don't live your life so that others can go into that place with you, how could you not? The reason it's important for us to know who Christ is and to put Christ in the right place is because when he's in the right place, our eyes are in heaven, and everybody that surrounds us starts shifting their eyes there too. Because when somebody keeps looking up, eventually you look up too. And that's where we look. That's why we have this hope of the future. Because we have to keep looking up. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit our website at www.canvaschurchsd.com.